Welcome to the Stories of Transformation podcast. I'm your host, Bakhtash Ahadi. Each week, I dive into deep and intimate conversations with the most distinguished guests who share their unique perspectives about the most interesting topics of our time. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Celine Gounder, who is an accomplished medical journalist and has been named by People Magazine as one of the top 25 women changing the world. Dr. Gounder is currently a practicing physician at the Bellevue Hospital in New York City and is an assistant professor at NYU. She's best known for her coverage of the Ebola, Zika, opioid, and COVID-19 epidemics. Specifically in this conversation, we pursue the following questions. How and why she got into medical journalism? What are the political and psychological parallels between her work as an aid worker fighting Ebola in West Africa and COVID-19 in New York City? How COVID-19 exposes major inequities and disparities in our healthcare system in the United States, especially along racial lines? What her predictions are as it pertains to the reopening of New York City? Lastly, we discuss how she sees her personal background and good fortune as a conduit for serving the most marginalized communities across the world. Please share this conversation far and wide with those who could use it most. And as always, if you enjoyed this conversation, kindly leave a review. So without further ado, it's my pleasure to bring you Dr. Celine Gounder. Dr. Celine Gounder, welcome to the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Well, it's good to have you. And the reason why I wanted you to come on to Stories of Transformation and share your perspective is because a lot of the work that you do is at the intersection of medicine and storytelling. So in your own words, how do you describe what you do? I bear witness to what my patients experience, and I do that at the individual level, at the sort of social epidemiologic level, and I try to translate their experiences and the science around those experiences to the lay public through stories. Now, given your scientific background, how did you find the power of storytelling to be the best way in which to express yourself and your craft? Well, you know, I think as people who work in medicine or public health, we are invited into people's lives in a way that we get to see things and understand things in a way that the average person may not. And I think there's real importance to being able to share with that you know, very often the most powerful evidence isn't a scientific paper or statistics. It's really knowing someone else's lived experience. And, you know, this goes back actually to work I was doing right out of college. My first job out of college, this is in the late 90s, was working for two older Princeton alums, Ralph Nader and Gordon Douglas. At the time, Gordon was the vice president for Merck's vaccine division, an infectious disease doctor, which is you know what I've become myself. And Ralph Nader really doesn't require an introduction. You know, the famous consumer advocate. You know, it might seem like an odd pairing of alumni working together on something, but they had identified a need to advocate for increased work and funding for tuberculosis control worldwide, and. The way Ralph came at it, you know, not as an infectious disease person, was that why is there all of this momentum and advocacy around HIV, but not around other big infectious disease killers like tuberculosis and malaria? And so he and 
Gordon, who came at it from more of the science and, and medical perspective, teamed up and hired me. So if you think about it, what I was really having to do was spend time on the Hill in DC, meeting with people in the executive branch as well, educating them about why is this an issue? Why is tuberculosis something we should even be worried about? And explaining the stories of people of working age, supporting their children, supporting older parents, you know, at the prime of their life, what this meant to get a disease like TB. And, and not to mention, you know, sort of the intersection of the TB epidemic and HIV epidemic in many areas, just how that had become one of the leading killers, uh, infectious disease killers worldwide. So having to tell stories already in that context. And then I went back to school after a year of doing that work, went on with my public health and medical training. My job at the time was working with this big Gates Foundation-funded research program, which was looking at TB and HIV. And it was really saying, okay, we've done this research, but we have an obligation to get that research out there. And for that research, not just to live in medical journals, but to really have an impact on policy. And so my job in, in that was how do you work with everybody from patients on the ground, activists, journalists, all the way up to elected officials and other public officials in terms of translating science into action. And so a lot of that, again, is storytelling. You know, those two sets of experiences, many years apart, really are what put me on this line of work and really seeing a gap there where there just aren't that many people who are trained in science and medicine who actually do practice and do these things and who tell stories and explain it. And so understanding what the potential policy impacts could be or not be if the information doesn't get out there is really what motivated me to to go into this work. It's true. Sometimes the best medicine begins with a well-told story. Now, as part of your work, you spent some time in Guinea during the Ebola outbreak in West Africa in 2015. Could you tell us the story about how that came to be and what you learned from that experience? You know, I had known since January or February of that year that this was brewing, that this did not look good. And by May or so, started to reach out to volunteer and, and, you know, respond. And I felt like I really had a duty to do so. I was trained in infectious diseases and epidemiology and had spent a big chunk of my career and training working in sub-Saharan Africa, so was familiar with that context. But I think what happened is these organizations were really not prepared to vet the number of volunteers that were stepping up or to really send them over safely where they could help in the way that was needed. You know, the way Armin Sprecher, who's at MSF, Doctors Without Borders, said it to me, you know, there's no point in sending over flight attendants and pilots if you don't have the plane. So you really need to have all of the different components um, for this to make sense. And so it took a while for organizations to ramp up and so it really wasn't until maybe eight months or so later that I went over. And so at that point, we had seen the disease already peak in Liberia, in Sierra Leone, and there was concern that it was next going to peak in Guinea. So Guinea is as big as the other two countries combined. Conakry, the capital, is similarly as big as Monrovia and Freetown combined. 
So there's a lot of concern about that. The disease had started in Guinea in the forest area, more rural area, had then descended through Liberia and Sierra Leone, and then was wrapping back around into Guinea. And, and this time it was threatening Conakry, the, the capital. So that was you know, very scary in terms of what the implications might be. And so I also speak French. And so it made a lot of sense for me to go to Guinea as a French speaker who also had all these skills. Mm-hmm. You know, And then getting there, it was a really interesting context, which is actually has much in common to our own situation here in the United States and COVID today. They were in the middle of their own presidential election, which unfortunately really politicized messaging as well as programs to respond to the Ebola outbreak. You had political supporters of the ruling party who would go door to door wearing the yellow t-shirts and scarves of the ruling party. It would be as if you had a Biden or Trump campaigner coming to your doorstep wearing, you know, a campaign t-shirt or baseball cap and telling you what to do about COVID. And of course, your reaction would be very much through the lens of those politics um, if somebody is presenting to you in that way. And that's exactly what happened. And Guinea is also a very new democracy. This was basically the first presidential democratic presidential election since their very first president was elected. So there was a lot of concern about, was this going to be done fairly and justly? Was Ebola being used as an excuse to prevent campaign rallies, outdoor gatherings? And in that midst is where you had people come out and say, Ebola is not real. It's a hoax. You know, those kinds of things, which we hear about COVID. People filter the information they get through identity. And you know, politics is a big part of that identity. Oh, that's a really interesting correlation. So you see many parallels between what's going on now politically with COVID-19 and your work at that time in Guinea with the Ebola pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. It's the same psychology. And you know, it's also really interesting. I think we tend to have this reaction to other people in other countries, whether it's Guinea or you know, maybe people in China, that they are somehow more primitive than us or less scientific or you know, whatever it is. And so they are, that's why they're behaving in this way. But when we have the same situations, conditions here, we actually behave the same way too. I mean, it, this is human psychology mm-hmm. that transcends really borders, culture, socioeconomic, national developmental status. Um, This is really just about human psychology. You know, a lot of the work that you do is you meet people in a place where they are quite vulnerable, they're scared, there's a lot of uncertainty in their lives. What does this bring out in you? What arises in you when this sort of thing at that frontier where people really need your help, what does that arise in you? I guess I I view it more as partnership and understanding that I am very fortunate in my circumstances, that I'm not necessarily better than any of them. In many ways, it's sort of luck that I was born into the circumstances that I'm in. You know, one thing that really impressed me, my driver in Guinea, who would also help out with translation into local dialects and, you know, those kinds of things, had an undergraduate degree in chemistry, you know, and here he was driving. And it's not that he's uneducated and unsophisticated, very highly educated. And it's so fascinating, really understood American politics in a way that many average Americans wouldn't because they follow these things because it really has 
tremendous implications for their own lives. You know, how, how the U.S. is a global power and leader, our politics matter for them. And so realizing it's not that I know better necessarily, it's that I have been fortunate and I am in some ways a conduit for funneling resources in partnership with them. Mm-hmm. So I guess, I guess that's how I think about that. I spent a year living in India and India taught me a very important life lesson at a very young age. It taught me that the world can be unbelievably unfair and it starts out by being unfair because people are born into a world where they don't get to choose the country they're born into, the language in which they're born into, the religion in which they're born into, the parents in which they're given. They're not given any of these choices. That's the starting line that leads to the trajectory of our lives in many ways. Well, you mentioned India. My, my father was from India. So he was from a rural rice and sugarcane farming village. He was the first person to go beyond the fifth grade. He studied on scholarships, ended up going to the Indian Institute of Science, which is sort of like the MIT in India, and then went on for graduate studies, first initially briefly in Canada and then the US. And that was all on scholarship and on the basis of his working really hard and doing well in his studies. But he was the only person that left that village that generation. It took until well into the next generation for anybody to leave. And so it's not like he had role models for that, really. You know, and I look back, had I been born to one of his siblings, I would probably still be in that village right now. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I am very aware that I got very lucky in terms of my birth and life circumstances. A lot of the work that you do is with working with marginalized communities. Now, does that sense of understanding about where your father came from in any way foster a desire to essentially work with marginalized communities? Oh, yeah, 100%. For me, the the greatest way of saying thank you is is to try to give other people the opportunities in some way, to help raise other people up in the way that I was lucky to have had. You worked on a documentary, Dying to Talk. Can you tell us what you're trying to convey in your documentary? Well, it's called Dying to Talk because quite literally people were dying because they couldn't be heard, because their voices weren't being heard. And so these were the concerns of, you know, people on the ground. So, for example, women who might have run an informal market selling vegetables, those sorts of things, being told, no, actually, we're going to put up an Ebola treatment unit here. And essentially stealing somebody's livelihood, who's going to buy from a market that's next door to an Ebola treatment unit? Those kinds of stories of understanding and working with communities and what their needs are and being responsive to that. There was a lot of tension over burials and being respectful about that. People in New York, for example, have been really upset about what's being done with unclaimed bodies being sent to this potter's field. You know, after 14 days, if nobody claims the body after a COVID death, they are being buried in this potter's field. And you know, is that a respectful burial? The Hasidic Jewish community in, in New York has also had a lot of concerns about being able to follow their practices. And mm-hmm. 
this is not superstitious. It's how we show appreciation for and say goodbye to our family members. We've also heard about not being able to visit family members in the hospital. It's a similar situation mm-hmm. with Ebola treatment units. You obviously, if you don't have it, you can't go in. Mm-hmm. And how do you communicate with family? Here, we've tried to facilitate that with telephone calls and so on. In Guinea, that was not always so feasible. And families felt like their loved ones were being sent to these Ebola treatment units really to die or to be killed and feeling like they couldn't trust because they couldn't communicate with people um, who were on the inside. So Mm -hmm. I think really respecting those very human needs to communicate, to feel heard, and to share is really at the center of some of the lack of trust and buy-in down the line. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought this up. You know, a lot of the talk, a lot of the chatter that's surrounding COVID-19 or even, you know, the Ebola epidemic that happened in Guinea, there's a lot of talk about death tolls and the amount of people that have died. And a lot of your work supersedes that. And so I'm curious to know what else is lost in the process of these pandemics and these epidemics, what isn't being told or isn't being shared as a matter of a negative implication of these diseases that people should know? Yeah, I do think we fixate a little bit too much on the number of deaths on the epidemic curve. Are we at the peak? Are we at the plateau? You know, Not to say that those things are not important because they are. They are important in terms of dictating When do we lift social distancing restrictions? How do you allocate resources? It is important. But I think for the average person, I think understanding that it's not just the people who died, it's there are many people who get sick and survive these things. And, you know, what are the long-term consequences of of having had one of these diseases? We don't really know yet for COVID. What are the long-term sequelae? For Ebola, they can be quite severe in terms of ongoing issues, neurologic issues, fatigue issues, and so on. And so people don't go back to normal. And then there's also stigma. We saw with Ebola, people losing their husbands or wives to stigma, where that spouse would leave them even after they had recovered, that they would not be accepted back into their village, that they would lose their farms, that they would not be able to sell at the local market, people would ostracize them. If you were a, an Ebola orphan, you know, parents had died that no one would want to take those kids in. Those kinds of things can be just as bad as the disease itself. Mm-hmm. And we have yet to see, you know, how that's going to play out with COVID. But I, I do fear that there's going to be some parallels there as well. Now, you're living and working in the belly of the beast, so to speak. You're currently in New York where you're a professor at NYU and you're a physician at the Bellevue Hospital, how do you think the unfolding of New York will occur as it pertains to opening up the city amidst COVID-19? Yeah, I have a lot of concerns about that, including with respect to equity. I think people who can, and frankly, you know, they should, if they can telework, they should continue to telework because that is going to be the best way to minimize transmission. But who gets to telework? It tends to be people of higher socioeconomic status in professional positions. And who doesn't get to telework? It's often people of color, immigrants, 
people of low, lower socioeconomic status in certain parts of the city who are performing these necessary service jobs, whether it's restarting transportation or providing obviously essential services in, in healthcare facilities or home health uh, services or food preparation or you know any number of these things that require people to actually go into a place of work. And so I am very concerned that as we lift social distancing restrictions, we know transmission will start again and that that transmission is going to really burden certain groups who've already been hit hard in New York. So, you know, in particular that Latinx and Mm -hmm. African-American communities. And I think we're going to see more of that in the coming months. Mm -hmm. What's really, really curious about this disease is that it creates a sense of distrust of people, Mm -hmm. right? You can't see this thing. You can't feel it until it's too late. So it creates a great sense of distrust So do you feel like in any capacity or in any way that COVID-19 garners a lack of empathy for others? I do. I think when people are afraid, you lose your empathy. And I think that's also what we saw with Ebola, Mm -hmm. that as a result of being afraid, there was sort of this forgetting of the human. It's almost like you became the virus, right? Mm. Yeah. So I am concerned about that. I am concerned about how do you overcome that? You know, I think, for example, with HIV, it was a little bit different because once we knew how it was transmitted, you know, so through sexual intercourse, through blood, you could sort of also rationalize, look, I can hug somebody who has HIV. I could even kiss somebody who has HIV. I am not going to get HIV that way. And so it was a little bit easier to overcome that. I think with something that's a respiratory virus like COVID, that's really going to be hard. That's going to be challenging. Yeah, that's the most curious and dangerous thing about this disease is we don't know who has it. People can be asymptomatic. It can transfer. It can be transmitted. And so we as a collective have to deal with this. The question is, how do we deal with this going forward, especially from a mental health perspective? And so I think this is probably a good time to talk about your two podcasts where you talk about public health and you talk about COVID-19. So if you could, could you tell us a little bit more about those two initiatives? Yeah, that's right. So the original podcast is called American Diagnosis. So season one, we covered youth and mental health. Season two was on the opioid overdose crisis. And season three was on gun violence in America. And what these each have in common is really a big public health issue where there are real disparities in terms of who's suffering the most and why. And understanding sort of how different lenses, whether it's a historical lens or a psychological or sociological, not just the science, help us understand these problems. So I am in the midst of reporting and producing season four. Stay tuned for that coming out probably in the fall. But then, you know, when COVID hit in February, I decided, gosh, this is really important. This is something that has a lot in common with some of the other things that I have reported on and worked on. And there was clearly a need for reliable information. So, you know, that's why that's why I launched this one too. Given the fact that you're not only the epicenter in New York City of this disease and of this crisis, but you're also somebody who understands the science behind it. Mm-hmm. You're on the front lines of understanding the science and you're also able to tell the story behind it in order to influence others and educate others. And so I'm curious to know, based on all the misinformation that's out there, what exactly are people getting wrong about this thing in mass? 
I would say the trade-off between the economy and health. I think there does not need to be a choice between the two, but we do need to start thinking about this differently. And I think we're constrained by how our political economy has functioned to date and have not considered other approaches. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a moment to really reimagine how our society is structured to address some of these inequities and challenges that are playing out now. I mean, one small example is employer-sponsored insurance. Well, when you're in the midst of a pandemic and your health insurance is tied to your job and everybody's losing their job, that's obviously a dysfunctional system that's not addressing the needs. Um, and so to reimagine how we could be structured, I think there's a real opportunity in that. And so I think that to me is the biggest myth that you have to choose between the two. I think that's right. I mean, this pandemic, if it's doing anything, it's essentially showing us in our society what's broken from within. And having health insurance tied to employment is certainly one of those things. Mm -hmm. So do you feel as a healthcare provider in the United States, do you feel that healthcare should be universal? You know, I don't think that's what's going to happen immediately. I think we are a country that progresses towards those kinds of social changes incrementally. But I do think there really does need to be reevaluation of that. And how do you meet the health care and public health needs of people during a pandemic is sort of step one. Once we're on the other side of the pandemic, you know, what will we have learned from that? How can we be better prepared in the future? How can we make sure everybody has access to health care, at least a certain level, in a way that makes sense? I do think there's going to be an ongoing conversation there. I do think we have to be a little bit careful not to try to do everything at once, in part because I don't think it will be politically feasible. It'll be seen as a Trojan horse trying to you know, sneak in reforms on the back of COVID, and that could backfire in terms of delaying very necessary things in terms of the COVID response. Mm -hmm. But I think an incremental approach also gives people a chance to evaluate change, build on change. And I think eventually, I think we are moving in a direction away from employer-sponsored insurance, especially as we have more and more gig economy workers where that's really not feasible. And then for all of the reasons we're seeing during this pandemic, you know, to move in a different kind of, of direction in terms of how we get our health care. Mm -hmm. That's one major transformational component to this COVID-19 pandemic that's taking the, the world by storm. So I'm curious to know, how do you think COVID-19 is going to change our society? Well, I do think there will be some changes that might seem smaller, but really are very much part of our cultural behaviors, things like shaking hands. I hope that that is a practice that frankly ends um, with this. That's a practice that dates back hundreds, uh, if not thousands of years to showing that you did not have a weapon in your hand. Well, you know, that's sort of an out of date cultural practice if you think about it. So I think those those are sort of at the micro level. I think one level up, the idea that you would send your kids to school even though they're sick, that you would go to work even when you're sick, you know, I think that will change, but that's going to mean what are you going to do with your kids when you have to go to work and they're sick? You know, what are the alternative childcare arrangements? Um that's that's not a small task to address. So on those levels and then I think as 
Tony Fauci and Deborah Birx have said at some of the White House press conferences, you know, this pandemic has really shown a light on health disparities, in particular with respect to race, and that that really does need to be addressed. And those sort of challenges are at a much more meta political and socioeconomic level. And, and what do those policies look like? So I think this has the potential to be truly transformative. Mm-hmm. So Celine, we're coming up on our time here. One question that I'd like to ask all my guests is the following. Mm-hmm. Celine, what's your message for the world? I guess the way I approach whether it's Ebola or COVID, I approach it through the mind of a scientist, but also with empathy. So what does that mean? I think our natural instinct is to think as lawyers in a sense where you know what you want to prove and then you rationalize that. You backfill the evidence. And I really start from a place of curiosity, at least I try to, from a place of curiosity and empathy and ask questions and try to learn as I go and, you know, maybe on some level test out hypotheses of, okay, so this is what I think, but is this going to hold up? And to approach problems in that way. And I just think that allows you to think a little bit more openly and out of the box, you know, not to prejudge people to, to really try to, you know, understand where they're coming from. And I'm not perfect. None of us is at that, but that's what I at least try to do. And I think your work as a marriage between your medical background and your storytelling is very much a representation of that. So Celine, I just want to say thank you for your time and thank you for the work that you do. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. This was fun. Thank you for joining us on the Stories of Transformation podcast. This podcast is produced by Dana Drahos. Audio engineering by Joe Genjemi. Marketing by Catherine Ahn. Artwork by Mashida Hadi, and theme music by Kais Esor. If you love Stories of Transformation, you can help more people find us by leaving a review and sharing the episodes far and wide. We're grateful for all your support, and on behalf of the Stories of Transformation team, I'd like to say thank you. Okay, see you next time.